0: Hello, everyone. I'm Jerry Batho, and welcome to the Green Minds Podcast. We're really excited to kick off this season's episode with an interview. Um, I'm really lucky to be speaking to Fran Van Dijk. Fran is, um, well, she's worked at the in sustainability in the sustainability sphere for her whole career and currently holds a a real variety of roles. Fran is a B Corp ambassador, a board member for the Scottish Environmental Protection Agency, a founding partner at One Stone Advisors, and chair of the Macaulay Development Trust. In this conversation, we'll talk about Fran's background uh, and career before focusing on the work of the Macaulay Development Trust, We'll then talk a little bit about COP26 and finish off by exploring some of Fran's hopes and worries for COP26. So I hope you all enjoy the conversation and without further ado I will welcome Fran to the podcast. So welcome Fran.
1: Thank you very much, it's lovely to be here Jamie.
0: Yeah and thank you very much. For, yeah I know you're super busy at the moment so thank you again for for giving us some of your time. So I thought I've obviously given you a little bit of an overview there but um, would you be able to yeah, take a minute to tell us a bit about your background and, and maybe introduce yourself in your own words?
1: Yeah, so my background is sustainability consulting, as you've already said, and specifically in the sort of sustainability leadership space. That's where I've always tried to position myself. So, you know, what are, what are people trying to do next to, to stay ahead of the game, to move the needle and really make a difference? Because as a B Corp, I'm really interested in impact and that has helped me define what it is I want to do professionally.
0: Um, and I guess I probably should say that um, Fran is also an imperial college alumnus so that you get brownie points for that as well beyond this podcast
1: yeah and I can I can tell you how because I did a master's at the Royal College of Art in design management with industrial design engineers who were studying at imperial so that's that's the connection there but I get the magazine so I'm fully up to date
0: (laughs) good you're yeah you're a loyal alumnus then Um, yeah so yeah, I did want to focus briefly on on the kind of sustainable consulting world. So there's a lot of people on in my university cohort, and I assume in cohorts across the country that are interested in consulting and more and more so in sustainable consulting, but maybe don't mm. they know who the big firms are and they kind of can point to people who are doing work, but they don't really understand an awful lot about the sector. So maybe a good place to start is with One Stone Advisors. And as you are a founding partner, maybe just tell us that story about why you founded it and, and what it does
1: yeah I'll tell you that story and I'm also going to give you a little bit of background kind of the foundation of that story because it's so different now to how it was when I started and I think it might be quite interesting for you to hear how different yeah so um when I when I graduated I just a year after that my degree was in anthropology my undergrad and archaeology too and so I was really interested in kind of social impacts economic impacts the whole development piece I walked into a bookshop and picked up a book called Our Common Future, which we know is the Bruntland Report now. And I read that book and it really blew me away because it defined this thing called sustainable development for the very first time. And it said, look, to progress, we need to balance social, economic and environmental. We need to do it all at the same time. So we need to think holistically, get out of our silos and really work together on this stuff. And I thought that is what I want to do. And the tricky thing was it had only just been coined. So there were no jobs in this unless you worked at the UN. So it took me uh, mm, 10 years, nearly, well, eight years to get from that point to getting a job in sustainability. And I just kind of set my sights on working out how to do that. And first of all, I worked, carried on working in design, green design, which was very untrendy at that point. And we were looking at, dual life cycles of products. We were looking at design for disassembly. We were looking at very, very early LCA, you know, which was on paper with facts on paper. There was, it wasn't digital, very crude, Uh, but we had, we were very lucky. We got hired by the body shop to do piece of work for them. And that set us up. And then it was really hand to mouth until I got an opportunity to co-direct Edinburgh's Environmental Film Festival, the first one they ever did. We premiered some great films, but most importantly, we put on a business event. And at that business event, we invited some key people in environment at that time and business. And that really made me think I need to professionalise. So I went off and did another master's. (laughs) And this time it was an environmental management and business. It was a European based one. And I met all sorts of great people. And I used my master's thesis to get me in contact with good people. Uh, one of whom was John Elkington at sustainability and I landed a job at sustainability because of that and at that point sustainability was absolutely the place to be in the field of sustainable development for business and when I joined we were just launching finessing and launching this concept that John had developed called the triple bottom line uh, which now you know is almost kind of Slang for sustainable development for business. Really, it's 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 been adopted, but then it was brand brand new, and that is where my career working with business launched um, properly. And really, One Stone is an extension of that. But I, you know, I left sustainability in two thousand. So we set up One Stone in two thousand and nine, with the idea of having that leadership positioning, working at the crest of the wave four of us set it up. Each of us had a fair amount of experience beforehand. And what we wanted to do was be more than some of our parts together. And we wanted to be able to bid for work from really big companies. So we were very selective and very ambitious and very targeted. Um, and, and, and were successful. You know, early clients were Electrolux and Ericsson, then moving on to people like Tetra Pak and Scania and Atlas Copco, all of those in Scandinavia, which at that time was much more open to, to those kinds of approaches than the UK. Yeah. But that's shifted. I mean, One Stone's working mostly in the UK now. So uh, that's, that's, that's really changed. But the, that, that um, positioning of not doing PR, not just helping companies be minimally better, uh, has been very good for us because we've never wanted to max the amount of work we do we've always wanted to have impact make enough money to get by um, and know that we're working with the clients you want to work with so it's yep. a very different model to your ERMs and your PWCs and your KPMGs it's just, it's very boutique
0: got you yeah I that's a it's a that's a great story and I think a lot of people on my course will also resonate with your personal story of figuring out really what you wanted to do and then finding a masters to do it there's lots of lots of people on my course that have including me actually that have kind of gone through that process and so that resonates and I wonder how much has the how much has the interaction with your clients changed so you talk about not wanting to kind of just be doing PR and and shouting about green initiatives and and maybe some of that is classed as greenwash now how much of mm. companies themselves wanted to get away from that and actually make change how how has that process been it,
1: yeah that really really depends on a number of things one is leadership in the sector you know is the sector that really making big changes happen generally because then all those companies in that sector will be trying or mm. is it more of a, a sort of sector that is resisting change um and another another question is who's leading the company you know what is not what's not just the ceo but what's the board like you know what's the governance like what are how are they looking at risk and opportunity in this space it it really varies and one thing that i'm seeing a lot right now and i'm sure it's familiar to people listening is there are a lot of companies going for ipos you know wanting to be listed wanting to get more money injected into them and investors are now requiring them to have at least basic ESG credentials, because though that's part of the assessment process now. And I think the trick there is for us is, you know, not to be kind of roped into just helping a load of companies get over the line so they can get some money, but actually getting them to set, you know, have proper ambition, proper strategy, set science-based targets and, and other, you know, really ambitious targets in, in topics other than carbon. Yeah. And, and to, you know, do all the right things, set the targets, measure, report and repeat the cycle.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and I guess a huge part of that is having the right governance structures and internal culture to make that not a chore, but more of the identity of the, com- the company and, and part of their the operation. So my last question on one stone would then be, do you focus in specific sectors? Because the, the the variation in company to company and their willingness to make change is obviously due to sector. Do you Yeah. Do you specify in in where you will actually put put your effort?
1: Not really, because I think it's really valid to want to lead your sector. Um, I think it's a valid position to take to to be a leader so others can follow. So if you've got a poor sector, if you're doing something really amazing, we generally would think about it. There are exclusions, you know, um, we were, we were asked by a company which, which we thought made jets and it turns out that they made cluster bombs. Um, and so <laughs> yeah. that's, that's not what happens. I, you know, there, there are sectors, I think that don't come to us, you know, oil and gas doesn't come to us. People making arms, even airplanes generally don't come to us. We have had one approach that I was quite clear how I would like to work with them. And I think they went with someone else. Mm. Um, so, so, Generally, it, it, people know what we're like and there are plenty of other companies to choose from if you want to do a kind of middling job. So they, they tend not to approach us if they're not willing to, to really try.
0: Yeah. OK, well, that's a good first step to working with these people is to know that they are actually serious about wanting to make these changes. And I guess it could have been a very interesting project trying to work with someone who is building cluster bombs to, to become more sustainable and, and change that narrative. I'm not sure how you would have gone about that, but might have been a bit interesting.
1: Uh, yeah, very, and we following that approach actually, we, met, we designed ourselves a decision making tree for when that kind of um, client approaches us. How do we, what thinking process do we go through to decide whether to work with them or not? Um, and, and that was when that initial approach actually was quite interesting because one of our partners at the time, um, she's Jewish and believes very strongly in the right to self defense, which is understandable. Uh, you know, from that perspective, I'm I, I'm not making a comment about you know Israel or Zionism, um, but I, I can understand that sentiment. Yeah. But when we discovered kind of when we got dug under the skin of this company and we found out what they were doing, we, we um, no, that was an immediate no.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I can understand that. Well, yeah. So thank you for all that detail on, on one stone. I would recommend that anyone listening who is interested go check out the website. Um, and there's a list of clients and a list of work and do that as well. Yeah. Um right. so yeah, so thanks for that. I wanted to now move on to talk about um the Macaulay Development Trust, um, which of course you mm. are the chair. So as I said in uh, I don't can't remember if I mentioned in the intro, but this is a charity that basically supports research into sustainable use of land and natural resources. So I wondered if you could just give us a bit of background and colour on the origins of the charity and really what really what it's doing and what its impact is
1: yeah and it's it's a um so there was this guy called tb macaulay and he came from the island of lewis in scotland which some of you might know it's in the outer hebrides or the western isles and it's quite a tough old lifestyle there you know very few trees very windy um a lot of peat quite rocky so you can imagine quite hard to make a living and a lot of crofting on, on which, which means you've Farm on a a relatively small piece of land supported by a bit of fishing and so on. He he grew up and left the island and went to Canada and became successful in insurance um, with the Sun Insurance Company. And on his death decided to leave some money to Scotland to research land use, sustainable rural land use, because he wanted people who came from the Highlands and the islands to be able to farm more effectively. And and over time, the focus of that has changed from simply raising production to looking at sustainable farming. And and an institution has come out of that called the James Hutton Institute, um, which is the old Macaulay Land Use Research Institute linked with the Scottish Crop Research um, Centre. And so that's now called the James Hutton Institute and the Macaulay Development Trust was left when that partnership formed, the Macaulay Development Trust was left And essentially, we have an endowment. So we have a small endowment, which we look after and invest according to ESG criteria. That's one thing I did when I took over or joined the trust before I became chair. We made that shift to make sure that our investments aligned with what we were trying to do. Mm -hmm. And so we get bids from people for usually fellowships, studentships to do with sustainable land use and that and it's you know very specific it might be water temperatures in rivers or it might be you know where do you plant trees not just you know how but actually what soil types what kinds of trees if you're going to do peatland restoration how much water do you need you know what what is the optimum level of wetness for a restored peatland you know really detailed questions like that and actually fundamentally very important and also focusing on the socioeconomic side community building as well
0: Got you. So does that help? does that work have any geographical focus? I mean, obviously we're based in the UK. Is it mainly UK social funding? Yeah,
1: it's Scotland. Um, very specifically, it's based in Scotland.
0: Got you. And is there yeah there is, is there any other plan? I guess if you're looking into these ecosystems and doing lots of research about how these ecosystems work, how they can function better, that is very geography specific. Is, uh, is there the scope to expand much of this research to, I guess, the tropics or to somewhere that is completely different or is it? Is it yeah. I mean, I,
1: I think the fun thing is, is now that the James Huff Institute includes crops, um, you know, from the Scottish Crop Research Institute. So we can start moving into, for instance, vertical farming um, mm-hmm. because that, if you think about it, if you were to get some decent solar or wind power, vertical farming requires a lot of energy, right? So you, if you can get a sustainable energy source and you live in the Shetlands and it's very dark in the winter, you can grow your own salad once you've got the costs down enough on your in your vertical farm extremely efficiently um, and, and with very little disease, so very little requirement for pesticides and herbicides and so on. So it's potentially very significant actually for any place that is northerly or you know doesn't have doesn't have very perfect growing conditions so although we are focused on Scotland essentially our interest is upland areas and areas with poor soil you know small small rural communities that kind of thing that's that's kind of where the resonance um really is because those communities tend to be quite neglected you know where the soil is very fertile life isn't so hard so we are really focusing on areas where life is hard, and where it's actually a real benefit to try and keep people, keep people in the community to keep them viable.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I, that that's it's a very interesting link into vertical farming because that's a very kind of sexy space at the moment. That's actually there's a lot more attention there. There's a lot more money flowing there. So it's um, yeah, I'm glad you bring it up. And hopefully in, in later episodes of the podcast, we're going to get some some startups and, on, and some entrepreneurs working in this space that can can really dive into it because it. Yeah, I see a lot of attraction in the kind of resource efficiency um, and re- reduction of length of supply chains and all of, all of this good stuff that can have a, a real impact on the people in these spaces growing this food, but also then the environment and, and all the knock-on effects from from the current agricultural industry.
1: Yeah, sure, and there's one just outside Dundee, so we'll, well link to the James Sutton Institute. So, so that's that. And then the other thing, of course, that we do is the Macaulay Lecture. That we yeah. Every year, we put on the Macaulay Lecture and it's sort of, it's, it's become the biggest science-based public lecture in Scotland. So it's, the, it's sort of one of the ones that people look to come to and we get really good attendance from MSPs um, and academics and, you know, just people now increasingly gen- in, interested in, in the topic. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's a highlight of our year.
0: So how did, how did that actually start? Because this, this year is going to be the 43rd edition of that?
1: Yeah, and I haven't been to all of them. <laughs> um, so, do you know what I really can't, I really don't know how to start it started. I've been to quite a few because I was on the board of the Macaulay Land Use Research Institute in the early 2000s, So, I've been, you know, I've been to a really good climate change one in about two thousand and five. You know, by um, Stefan Schneelhuber, I think it was. Or, uh, but it and that kind of really made me understand the science, the scientific thinking behind climate change, climate change at that point. yeah. But what we've tried to do is popularize it a little bit. It used to be very internal. And now we, you know, it's usually in Edinburgh this year, it's going to be in Glasgow. Um, we want a wide audience. We try to get quite a high profile speaker. Uh, last year it was Dieter Helm. Um, the year before it was Jacqueline Mcglade from from UNEP. And, you know, these people, are great because they're used to public speaking. They're quite entertaining. They're really good at fielding questions afterwards. So it's generally a good night. And We yep. usually offer a glass of wine at the end of it also you can have a chat afterwards.
0: Uh, well, yeah, it does sound like a really good event. And this year is, I guess, a a really important one because so we're recording this on a on a Sunday. Um, and obviously today is when COP26 is kicked off, um, and the Macaulay lecture is on Tuesday. So although this airs on a, the listeners will be listening to this on a Thursday, there will be um I'll put a link in the show notes again to to look at to look at the Macaulay lecture that will be published on or that will take place on Tuesday. But you have Cristiana Figueres speaking at this one, which is hugely exciting.
1: We do. We have. It's incredibly exciting, and not only do we have Christiana Figueres on Tuesday, we discovered we also have Nicholas Sturgeon, who had not confirmed for months and months and months, understandably because you know she's got lots of options, mm-hmm. but said she would come. And we also now have three youth climate activists um, who, and they're all going to come together. So, well, they're going to speak individually, but they will all be on stage together at, at the end. So nice opportunity for cross discussions and Christiana in particular is very very focused on young people and supporting young people in tackling the climate emergency so um it I think I think it will be a really nice evening for those of you who are interested in climate change and want to know that you are supported by you know the older generation really because we do recognize how very you know what a really tough situation you will find yourselves in when you graduate and work
0: yeah well that is yeah that's it's nice to have that support but I guess for people some people I guess won't have heard actually who Christiana Figueres is so would you maybe spend 30 seconds introducing her and that will maybe create some hype
1: yeah so Christiana um, is essentially the dynamo behind the Paris agreement so some of you might know that in 2015, December 2015, that was the big moment that 196 countries actually got together and agreed that the, the temperature rise, post-industrial temperature rise must be below two degrees and preferably preferably more like one and a half, which of course has the IPCC this year said, look, one, it's got to be one and a half because two degrees is really damaging. So she... The reason she's so special is the Copenhagen um, COP in 2009 was a disaster in that nobody managed to agree anything. The US and China just wouldn't, couldn't agree. And so Christiana then had a number of years to get people together, put together what she calls a big tent, get people talking and get this agreement with something um, called NDCs which are the nationally defined contributions. In other words, what people were willing to do. um, And we knew that those had to be ramped up. She calls it ratcheted. The the, the nationally defined contributions were small in 2015, but the idea was was that they would be ratcheted. And money put in to help um, the global south make the changes it needs to make as a result of industrial activities from generally the global north.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, she's uh, obviously a hugely, hugely important figure. And I guess this is, so this COP is, as I understand it, the first year that that, this is the first ratchet, right? This is where the new um, targets get released, the new plans get released and scrutinized. And hopefully this will actually, I mean, I think that's why there's so much um, attention on this COP is because it's a real, it's that first landmark moment.
1: Yes, it's not going to be a Bang Bangkok like Paris was in that there was this huge announcement this immense wave of relief that finally countries have got together and made an agreement it's not going to be like that it's not going to be that euphoric but what we are really hoping to see is people rolling up their sleeves and saying let's get to work and yeah. here's the money to do it and and here are some you know and these are the things that are going into law because that's the key thing if you look at the what people have said they will do there's quite a lot of countries who've said they'll do stuff but not a lot of it is enshrined in law yet it has to go into into national legislation so that company that countries hold themselves to account and that's the difference we want to see coming up and we want to see money behind it as well yeah so that it's 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 important for those reasons
0: yeah and i guess the, the most recent example of companies making pledges and without the the legal backing or the plans behind it it's probably Australia they've been super reluctant to make any pledges and most recently have come up with a pledge and under scrutiny it's maybe not as uh, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> it, it does feel like it's just been plucked out of the air doesn't it <laughs> but one of the things that um, Christiana is very famous for is being optimistic and um, she calls herself a stubborn optimist which resonates very well with me and I believe that she will be very, very supportive of this Australian, you know, sticking their necks, sticking their necks out a little bit. Yeah. So that that's it. That, that it can only be a good thing as long as they're not simply pulling the wool over people's eyes you know, cynically. Yeah. What yeah, I yeah. understand of Australia, though, because I have a partner in Sydney, a business partner in Sydney, and my understanding from her is that there is a huge, huge amount of support for a zero emissions target in Australia. Scott Morrison does not represent Australia. He represents a controlling faction in the government, which is very, very influential on what is put into law. But he does not represent... For instance, instance, New South Wales has a zero emissions target. there, there, there's a lot of progression that is happening under the surface in Australia, just as there was in the US when, the, when President Trump was in power. You know, the mayors were still doing masses and the big cities were still doing loads. It was just that it wasn't, it wasn't happening at the federal level. Yeah. So it, the same thing's happening in Australia. So don't lose all hope with Australia. And, and also don't lose all hope with China because uh, I was reading Jeffrey Sachs in the financial times recently and he was saying look zero emissions by 2060 might not sound ambitious enough but let me tell you i believe strongly that they can bring that forward to 2050 they've got the technology they've got the power they've got money um, and when they decide to do something my god the chinese do it so yeah. he he's um connected to the ungc and the un and columbia university and, and very well-known economist in this space and and i was really heartened when he said that he wouldn't have said it lightly
0: yeah, and the thing that also gives me a um, hope with regards to China is that I really don't believe that they want to be seen as the climate villains. I really don't think they want to be in a world where they are the ones that, that that mess it up for everybody else and they are they are kind of have the finger pointed at them. I really don't believe that's the the role they want so they want to be leading the world they want to be the country that everybody looks to for leadership um, mm-hmm. And I don't think that's in their interest, if this is in their interest, really.
1: I, I, it's very difficult to know what the Chinese are thinking because they're very good at being quite circumspect. It, mm-hmm. it's, it's not, a, and it comes back to that culture. The culture is very, very different. And, and, and I don't think they like being aggressed by the West. I think they feel they are painted in a very unfair way by the West. And when you talk to Chinese people, the stories they tell are really. Quite different than the ones we see in the papers here. Yeah. So for instance, I, I don't know if readers are aware that China actually asked. Um, I, I, I don't know if you uh, um, are, are aware of you know, the various legal entities that, that, are, that are, are trying to change the law on, on environment around environment right now and climate change. And one is called Client Earth. And Plant Earth specializes in getting companies to move by tackling them through air pollution or, or other means. Planet Earth was approached by China to train all its local judges on the local level so that they could prosecute their government, their central government, for climate change and pollution offenses. So they specifically want to be held to account by judges on the local level to improve and that doesn't sound to me like a government that is not trying. I think I think actually they're pretty serious. And, and if ever you got a chance to have a get, look at that, have a look at Client Earth and have a look at the work they've done in China, it's, it's really significant. It's impactful.
0: Yeah, that's, well, that's a really interesting example that I wasn't aware of. And I'm sure lots of people won't be aware of, of that. So yeah, again, I'll, I'll put a link to, to Client Earth in, in the show notes. And yeah, but that's yeah. really... So there is, I guess there is, I was going to maybe zoom back and say then if you could sum up Looking at COP 26, what what would be your one hope, your one fear, and then do you think it will be deemed a success if we look back at this in two weeks? Do you think we'll be going? That was a good thing or 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 a letdown.
1: I I, I I'm going to be a bit boring with my one hope, which is you know I really want to see the money. Show me the color of your money, and in terms of getting stuff done because it can't be done otherwise. Yeah. Um, tell me that it's going to be put into legislation and let's, let's be consistent about it as well. You know, if we say we are committing to a low carbon economy, let's then not make exceptions. You know, let's just do it. And and really enable people on the ground to feel that they can be part of it. Because I think at the moment, there's a lot of anxiety around feeling just hopelessness. And we need to make sure that people feel that what they do can make a difference. Yeah. So I think there's kind of three levels of it. And my fear, uh my fear <laughs> one of them is well we're in Scotland right one of my, one of my fears is it's just going to rain for two weeks and <laughs> and people are going to be miserable and everyone demonstrating won't because they'll get soaked and freezing. And, and I think that'd be such a shame because you know, all those fantastic costumes and things that people bring all the way from Portugal and Spain and you know you name it. I mean, they'll all get, if, unless they've made them out of recycled parachute silk or something, they're going to get absolutely drenched and bedraggled. So that would be terrible. Because I, I want to see a very, very active, thriving, campaigning um, NGO community. I think it's super important. The police are very amenable to that, as long as it is peaceful. There's not going to be any problem at all. Um, so that my, my fear will be that that won't be possible. I, yeah. I would feel that the cop wasn't, you know, 100% if we didn't have a really nice vociferous load of stuff going on in the streets.
0: Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. So I would ask everyone that's listening to cross their fingers, say a prayer and wish for no rain in Scotland, which is, there will be rain at some point, it's two weeks long, that it will rain, but hopefully not sustained, awful (laughs) driving rain that we're used to.
1: I haven't checked the the (laughs) Yeah.
0: So then I'll I'll push you to make a prediction then on whether you think it will be deemed a success, and that's obviously your definition of successful, everyone's will vary, but yeah, do you think it will be successful?
1: Oh, gosh. I, do you know what? I think that the papers won't call it a success, quite pro- probably, because there isn't going to be this whiz bang moment. But quite probably, I think people who are inside and in the know will be re- will have seen real progress made. You know, very good discussions between important parties. Small, you know, commitments made, more NDCs, m- more money, as I say, and. Genuine. I, I would like to see the success of genuine help for the global south as well, because that is not forthcoming yet. Yeah. Um, so, so I would like to see something move on that.
0: Yeah, and that 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 ties in really well with the money piece. So, uh, there's obviously the the hundred billion dollar or pound commitment that came out of Copenhagen, which has not been met by lots of measures. Um, and I guess I, I was reading, I'll get these numbers wrong, so I maybe won't quote numbers, but the funding gap that needs to go into new technologies and renewable energies is in the order of trillions. But mm. the geographical gap of where that money needs to go is something like 70 or 80 percent that need of that money right. needs to go to what you would class as developing countries. And so mm. yeah, that's also one thing that I'm really would really, really look for in this COP is, the money and where it's going and how how robust these the, the kind of mechanisms to get that going will be.
1: And it it makes so much sense because I read a McKinsey report recently saying there is absolutely every reason for Africa's transformation to be green. You know, the, the IEA requests for you know zero new oil and gas exploration from now for, for if we're going to have any kind of a hope at sustainability needs to happen and yet there is this myth especially in emerging economies that in order to give people jobs and income oil and gas projects are a really good thing you know because that you immediately have a supply chain you immediately have need for people and all the rest of it but renewables projects do exactly the same thing in a much more long-term way and um, we need to flip people out of this old mindset of um oil and gas is great for local communities and for generating income because that is what they would like you to think. And they do have a PR machine churning that out, but it is not actually the truth on the ground. It would be better for everything to go green from now.
0: Yeah. And I I guess the parallel that people draw with that is Africa's um, telecommunications revolution. Instead of building miles and miles and miles of landline physical landline infrastructure to link homes to make phone calls they skipped all of that and went straight to the cellular modules uh, cellular models. so yeah i i'm completely with you that it needs to needs to be green from the start and we'll, they'll see the benefits of it
1: that's a great point and, I, and it would be really interesting to look at how that happened and why and what forces were not against it in other words you know How are they able to break through? Because, of course, what we have is very powerful incumbents here who are very controlling, very persuasive in the corridors of power and are are able to churn out through their communications machine messages that then are sent around the world. So it would be really, really interesting to know how that was avoided, um, as you say, when they leapfrogged straight to mobile technology
0: yeah yeah and again to anyone listening that maybe wants to do some digging and let us know then um please feel free to do that so um i wanted to finish by um asking you a more of a personal question about and this is again something i'll put in the show notes for for the listeners but if you could point to one book that you've read at any point in your life really that you found particularly impactful with regards to either your work or to climate change and sustainability in general what would it be and why
1: oh God, there are so many. There are so many. And behind me, you can see the bookshelf. This is practically all sustainability yes. classics. <laughs> um,
0: I'm, I'm actually
1: not going to go for a very obvious one. The, the one that everyone's reading at the moment, of course, is Christiana Figuerre's The Future We Choose, which, which is all about her experience in Paris and how they made that come about and how we can do more and better, which is a brilliant book. But I'm not going to choose that one. I'm actually going to choose a book called Anthrovision by Gillian Tett, and Gillian Tett is the moral money reporter for the Financial Times. And she's also an anthropologist like me. And the, the interesting argument she puts is that because sustainability or regeneration, you know, whichever mindset you're in right now, is, works across cultures and across traditional silos, you need to be culturally really, really tuned in to make that work. And actually, if you don't tune in culturally, it's never going to work. I, I read something this week that said something like 47 percent of sustainability initiatives in companies fail. And probably a high percentage of any type of initiative in companies fails. It's not just about sustainability, but probably the core reason for all of that failure is inadequate analysis of the cultures you're trying to connect, the way people work, their priorities, So how do you engage with them? And and her book, Anthrovision, is is packed with examples of, if you think about culture, how you can get so much more done in the sustainability space. So I I would recommend that if ever you're thinking of going into a business and wanting to break down silos and make things happen.
0: Oh yeah, that sounds like a really interesting book. And I, yeah, the the I guess the point really about culture is that nobody likes being told what to do and how to do it. They ha- there has to be collective buy-in, and everybody has to see the value. And that really is creating a culture that, that that has its mission statement as sustainability or whatever it is that you're trying to build. So yeah, I think that's a really important point, not just for going into business and trying to build, break down silos, but if you're trying to build a business from scratch, and really, it's a really good lens to view most things through. I would I would suggest.
1: Yeah, and and you know I think your generation is actually more attuned to that than my generation, where it was much more silo driven and much more you know plain economics driven, and health and well being was hardly thought about at work. Um, you, you were just a commodity, really. Um, not in the jobs I've done, I'm lucky, but for a lot of people it was like that. So I, I yeah I think I think you're right, building a business from the bottom up, and it that's. Another reason why being a B Corp is so great, because that's what most B Corps are about. Not all I mean, some of them are very, very growth focused. Don't get me wrong. You know, they're mm-hmm. really, really going for it. But generally with that is a strong focus on, on, the, on the culture. And I think that really helps, especially when you're trying to break boundaries and do something new, you know, and really make an impact.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you for that suggestion. As I said, I'll put that link, I'll put a link to the book in the show notes and I, we're going to try and run some kind of, we have to work this out, but some kind of competition for listeners to be able to win all the books that get mentioned um, throughout the series. So um, yeah, do take note and pick your favorites. Um, well, um, yeah, I'm conscious of the fact that we've had you for a while. So I wanted to wrap things up there and thank you very much um, for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed the conversation. and I hope that um, we get some good feedback from our listeners as well.
1: Great. Thank you very much. It's been fun.
0: So that was our first interview of the new season with Fran Van Dyke. I hope all of our listeners found it insightful, and I know I certainly enjoyed the conversation. Do head to our show notes. Um, You'll be able to find links of the organizations that we spoke about, and importantly, a link to the book that Fran recommended. There you will also find an email address, ibgreenminds at gmail.com. We're really eager to receive feedback on our episodes. So if you'd like to offer a critique or a suggestion, or you'd like to sing our praises, then do use that email address. But also if you would have suggestions on topics or guests that you'd like us to explore or speak to, then also use the email to suggest those. So that brings this first episode to a close. I, Jamie Batho, have been your host, and I hope you tune in again next week to the IB Green Minds podcast.